Well, good morning, Chatham Community Church. My name is Zane Pinkleton. I am the campus staff for UNC InterVarsity. And I think that this is my second time speaking here in like two months, which I think makes me a recurring guest. Uh, so you know I must like being here because I just keep coming back. Um, this morning, what I thought would be fun to do would bring you into my world a little bit. So this past year, uh, with my students on campus, we spent the fall semester going through a sermon series that I just called Torah. I really wanted to give the students a taste of the first five books of the Bible, mainly because the foundations for the rest of Scripture are really laid out in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Just look at the words of Jesus and how often he references these books, and you'll get a sense of what I'm talking about. So this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at Exodus 16, which I think was like week five of the series that I did with my students. But before we jump into the text, let me catch you up on what else has happened in Exodus up to this point. So Moses was born a Hebrew in a time where Pharaoh had ordered the midwives to kill all the Hebrew-born male babies. Moses escapes this fate by being floated down the Nile in a basket of reeds, where he's found by a member of the royal family, and he's raised as an Egyptian. He's raised in the household of Pharaoh, but he knows that he's a Hebrew. And so one day he sees a fellow Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian slave master, and in defense of the Hebrew, he kills the slave master. Now this one incident, as you can imagine, causes him some problems. So he flees to Midian, where he basically spends 40 years out in the desert as a shepherd. And then the rest of the story is probably familiar to you, one that you've heard or seen portrayed in movies. God appears to Moses in a burning bush. He tells him to go back to Egypt uh, to demand that Pharaoh set his people free. Moses does as instructed. Pharaoh refuses, and in response, God sends 10 plagues on the Egyptians until finally they decide to let the Hebrews go. God miraculously parts the Red Sea. The people arrive on the other side. They sing songs of praise to God, and then they set out for Mount Sinai. And that's where we're going to pick up the story tonight. The people are headed towards the mountain of God, and along the way, they face three tests. Exodus 16 describes one of those three tests. And I'll just warn you, uh, there is a lot of scripture in my sermon today. Uh, I, I'm not apologizing for that. One thing that I want my students to see uh, when they come to InterVarsity is that the Bible has some really amazing stories to tell and some really awesome things to see. And I want them to become passionate in a way that would inspire them to continue to read, continue to see, continue to learn. And I think that that applies to us as well. This story is really cool. Trust me, you're not going to notice the, scripture, the, the length of the scripture. So Exodus 16, starting in verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. So the first thing we see in this passage is a complaint. If only God had let us die in Egypt, at least there we sat around pots of meat. Now let's be honest. We all, we all know what it's like to be hangry, right? Hungry and angry at the same time. I've started many apologies uh, with the phrase, I'm sorry, I think I'm just a little bit hungry. Uh, if the people are really starving, 
it's hard to blame them for getting upset. The, the problem is, is that that's not what's really happening. Because look at Exodus 11. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, and as, as you have said, and go, and also bless me. And then on their way out of town, we further see that the Egyptians, who are afraid of the Hebrews because of the plagues that God has brought, give them things like gold to take with them. The Hebrew people crossed the Red Sea less than two weeks ago, and they have their flocks and their herds with them. They brought unleavened dough with them. It's really hard to believe that they're already out of food. And it's even harder to believe that they're already to the point of starvation. Instead, the text here and in the surrounding chapters of Exodus seems to suggest that what the people are really doing is demanding that God give them a sign. Prove yourself to us, God. Send us something to eat. Now, I could quote some verses to you to show you why that's problematic, but man, isn't it relatable? How often do we forget the ways that God showed up for us last week or last month or last year and demand that he prove himself here and now? I know you just parted the Red Sea a few days ago, God, but what have you done for me lately? Thankfully, God is gracious. And even when our requests seem ridiculous or self-centered in the grand scheme of things, he, he often still responds and meets us in those moments. He might not always give you what you want, but he, he often responds. Ex back into the text, Exodus 16, verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to pre prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord for he has heard your grumbling. And while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So this section of the passage is super interesting. God tells Moses that he's going to rain down bread from heaven. And then if you notice this, Moses goes and ups the ante. He tells the people that God is going to send them bread in the morning and Meet in the evening, but God didn't tell him that. Moses adds that in. It's almost like Moses knows his people. They aren't really asking because they're hungry. They're asking because they have already become nostalgic for the empire that they just left. They've already forgotten about the injustice and the suffering that they experienced in the empire. And what they remember is those pots of meat. They remember the illusion of abundance even though they were the ones who suffered acutely within that system. 
And this is one of the reasons that God's people are being tested in the desert. The tests really aren't about whether they will pass or fail. Instead, they're about identifying all of the ways that their nostalgia and fondness for empire need to be rooted out. God didn't just need to deliver his people out of Egypt. He needs to deliver Egypt out of them. Are we so different? We ask the Lord to provide daily bread, but how often are we convinced that if left to our own devices, we could secure a whole feast? To live in the new kingdom of God requires us to trust in God's provision, but we deceive ourselves by believing that if it were up to us, we could probably get more. God invites us to trust his daily provision and often we shout back, no, show us more, give us another, another sign. Things would have been better in the empire. At least there we had our pots of meat. And, and, and maybe that sounds a little bit far-fetched to you. You're like, that's ridiculous. If I had been enslaved in Egypt and then delivered out of Egypt, I certainly wouldn't be begging to go back to slavery so I could have my pots of meat. Maybe that's true, but maybe what you would have wanted God to do was not to deliver you from the empire, but just to put you in charge of it, right? I don't want to be delivered out into the desert. Just change the leadership. Let me do it. I promise it'll be better, right? Give me the power. Give me the thing that's been denied to me. And in that, we reveal what's truly going on, that in our hearts, we don't just need to be delivered from Egypt. We need Egypt to be delivered from us. And maybe you feel like you're wandering around in the desert, wondering if you'll ever make it to the promised land. But I want you to be encouraged. The desert isn't a curse. The desert is a special place for God and his people. The desert is where God reveals himself. It's where he speaks his name. It's where he draws near. Some of us think that we're in Egypt waiting to be delivered when actually what's happening is that we're in the desert and God is working on getting Egypt out of us. Yeah, it can be hot and dry and scary in the desert sometimes, but the desert is where we learn to trust. It's where we learn to depend on the one who can provide what we truly need. Back to the text, Exodus 16 verse 13. That evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little, and when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. The one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. And then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Now I told you in the beginning that this is one of three tests that the Israelites will face in the desert. And when we think of tests, we think of value assessment. A test is something you either pass or you fail. But that's not really what's happening in this text. The idea of a test to them 
is more about learning lessons than it is about proving your worth. And there's just a difference between how we think and how we perceive God and how ancient Israelites perceived God. Because when we tend to think about God, we think about him in theological terms. If I asked you to describe God, you would start listing off traits like he's omnipotent and he's omnipresent. He's all-knowing. He's transcendent. He's powerful. Whatever, right? You, you, would, you would tell me what God is like using traits. Those things are true, and they're great. But that's not how God talks about himself in the Old Testament. If I ask someone from the ancient world to describe God, they would say things like, well, God is a shepherd. God is a rock. God is like bread. God is an anchor in the storm. God is a firm foundation. He is a cornerstone. In the ancient Jewish world, God was not a concept to be studied and mastered. He was something that you could picture in your mind. He was personal, personable, relatable, not simply something to be studied. I tell my students all the time, God isn't a, a, another major. He's not something that you get to study and then master and understand. He's God. He is a he is a personable being that desires relationship with you. And that's how God describes himself in pictures so you can see this is what God is like. You could potentially ask them, what does God taste like? Which seems so weird to us, right? What are you talking about? He's God. He doesn't taste like anything. Uh, But they would say he tastes like warm, fresh bread right out of the oven. Why? Well, because God told them, I'm like bread. He shows them here. So when God uses these tests, he's not seeing whether they will pass or fail. He's teaching them a lesson. He's using the picture of the story to teach them. And this test paints a clear picture. I am God. I am with you today in the desert. And I will give you as much as you need for today. I will still be with you tomorrow. And I'll do it again. But you have to trust. You have to believe. You can't take enough to hold you over until tomorrow. You can't take enough to get you through the rest of the week. Because I'm with you today. And I'll still be with you tomorrow. Believe. This is why it's so important that they don't try to save the manna overnight. God is teaching them to trust. He is revealing himself to them. I am not like the other gods. I'm not threatening you. I'm not going to withdraw my provision from you. I am with you today, and I will be with you tomorrow. Will you trust me? And so maybe tonight, that question isn't just for the Hebrews wandering in the desert. Will you trust him? Will you trust that he's with you today and that he will be with you tomorrow? And if you wonder whether or not you are someone who knows how to trust God, I would encourage you to think, how much have you tried to save from yesterday until today, until next week? How much anxiety and worry and fear do you carry with you into the next weeks moving forward? How often do you think, about what's going to be next week or next month or next year. It's not bad to think towards the future. It's not bad to plan ahead. But maybe you're not just planning and being smart. Maybe you're trying to save manna until the next day, hide it under the bed, 
maybe Moses won't find it? Will you trust him? The last part of this passage that I want us to look at involves God's specific instructions for how to handle the seventh day, which again, I, sometimes we tend to read stuff in the Old Testament and we think it's really, really technical and specific and weird. And so like God gives them really specific instructions about what to do on the seventh day. And we think that God's just kind of making up rules to see if they'll follow it because we think a test is about whether you'll pass or fail. But let's look at it because I don't think that's what's going on. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. This is such a cool story. Any other day of the week, if you try to keep bread overnight, it will go moldy and the maggots will come. But on the sixth day, take as much of it as you need because the next day you need to rest. The Sabbath day is a day of rest. Practicing the Sabbath is an inherent act of trust. It requires us to confess that we are not at the center of the universe. That the world will keep spinning even if for one day a week we choose to stop producing. Practicing the Sabbath isn't just a test that God gives them to see if they'll pass. It's a picture of trust. God is in control. I am not. In the fall with my students, I used this sermon to introduce a, a Sabbath week for my chapter. For one week in the fall, we were instructing small groups not to meet, leaders not to plan. We didn't host large group that week. Instead, we rested. And there were a few reasons for this. A general sense of fatigue, a lot of complaining, um, but... Also, a need for spiritual rejuvenation among students. But my biggest reason is that I see Christians, particularly Christian leaders, become overly identified with their leadership roles. This happens so much that it can cause us to drift from the truth of the gospel. We can start to believe that Jesus chose to save us because of our potential and our ability to serve. But the truth of the gospel is that Jesus chose to save you because he loves you. That's it. There's no qualifiers. There's no caveats. And Sabbath is given as a gift for us to rest and to remember. And I'll be honest, the pace of life, the responsibilities of each day, the pace at which the world seems to move can sometimes leave me feeling pretty exhausted. Some days I feel emotionally spent 
I struggle to be the best father or the best husband because I have been stretched pretty thin. In other days, I get so caught up in the things that are happening in the world around me, and I find myself struggling with frustration and bitterness. What about you? Do you wear your busyness like a badge of honor? This is so popular amongst the students. If you went onto campus, try it. Go sometime in the fall. Take a random poll of 30 students and say, how are you doing? 29 of them will tell you how busy they are. Why? Because it's a badge of honor. We're all busy. If I'm not busy, then what, what use am I? What value do I have? You aren't students, not all of you but maybe you still wear busyness like a badge of honor. Is being busy something that you take pride in and draw your identity from? Maybe like me, the, the world seems to be moving too fast and there are days that you feel exhausted, angry, or maybe just sad. Friends, the Sabbath isn't a test to see whether you'll pass or fail. It's a gift that God offers to us. Not simply to worship together here, but to stop producing and to remember that God is in control, that he's with us today, that he loves us today, and that he'll be with us still tomorrow. When I was in college, one of my mentors said, not keeping the Sabbath is the only commandment that we as Christians can break and have other Christians celebrate us for it. Right, Like if I came up here and, and talked about, I don't know, uh, a, a line or using the Lord's name in vain, you all would be like, why is this guy preaching? Uh, but if I go back to campus in the fall and I tell my students how I worked all summer without a break, never took a day off to write amazing sermons to prepare for them to come back, a lot of them would be like, man, we, re- we were so lucky to have you. We appreciate how hard you work for us, right? No, no, they wouldn't say, you didn't even rest? You didn't even care to take a break and remember that God is God? It's the only commandment we can break and be celebrated by other Christians because we live in a world where our value and our identity is so closely linked to the things that we produce. And I believe that work is good, that it's designed by God. But I also know that he offers us Sabbath as a gift. And you might think this is irrelevant because you're already at church. So clearly you know the importance of Sabbath, but what else are you going to do today? Is this a day where you take some extra time to connect with the Lord? Is it a day where you uh, choose not to check emails and plan for the week ahead? Do you spend quality time with the people you care about? Do you eat a great meal and celebrate the gifts that the Lord has given you while trusting him to handle the things that are coming? Thank you for what you've given me today. I trust you for what's ahead. Today I will rest. That's Sabbath. We set it aside as a unique time to confess our trust in God. It's not simply meant to be a day off from responsibility. We are confessing together as the church of Jesus Christ that he is what we truly need above all else and that we are confident that he will provide for us what we need today and that he will still be with us tomorrow. So the question that I have to leave you with is, do you trust him? And if the answer to that is yes, wonderful. And if the answer to that is no, there's a few things you can start to do to build that trust. Maybe Sabbath. Do you trust him? Let's pray. Our God, we are grateful that you 
that you meet us in the desert, God, like in the hardest moments when we feel uh, like we couldn't go another step, that you have just enough shade for us, the amount of food we need for today, that you promise that you will be with us today and still with us tomorrow. And God, sometimes that lesson that that you are with us and that you are just enough is the thing that we need above all else, to, to trust in your daily bread not longing to go back to the empire where we sat around pots of meat, but just so happened to be enslaved. But that your bread, your provision, and your presence with us is enough. God, I pray that we would be people who trust you. We worship you because you are worthy. We trust you because you are trustworthy. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.